Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. I want to begin this morning by making a confession. So I'm going to let the children make their way out. I'm not going to try to minimize the confession by saying it was a long time ago or that it was my roommate in college who first introduced me to it or that it's no longer a part of my life. I take full responsibility for getting hooked on a soap opera in college. Specifically, the young and the restless. I admit I got hooked on these lame portrayals and these unbelievable storylines involving danger and intrigue and power plays and blackmail and betrayal and manipulation and mistaken identities and love triangles and sexual promiscuity and fraternity scandals. I just got sucked in. And I mention this not to lose your respect, although I understand (laughs) if that has happened. I mention it because Genesis 38 sounds like a soap opera. It reads like a soap opera. Soap opera. We started an Advent series last week on celebrating Jesus, God's indescribable gift, by looking at the story of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37. And we saw that Jesus is God's gift of hope for the dysfunctional. But Joseph's arrival in Egypt at the end of chapter 37 doesn't get taken up again until the beginning of chapter 39. And so we have what feels like a detour in Genesis chapter 38. We might wonder why these details and why this record of events is even given to us in the 38th chapter of Genesis. But one of the things we have to remember about these later chapters in Genesis is that they aren't just about Joseph, but they're about Joseph and his whole family. And they're ultimately about us. And what we see in chapter 38 is that despite how messed up our lives get, And despite how broken we are, there is God's gift of healing for the broken. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning. There's God's gift of healing for the broken. Genesis chapter 38, uh, all 30 verses, so it's a long text. We're going to read all of it. And so if you have that, you can stand for the reading of God's word. If you're able, again, it's a long reading. If you're not able, you can remain seated. And if you don't have your Bibles, uh, the text will be printed uh, on the screen here, which... I can't see. Okay, so here now, God's word. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. And then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother." But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as to not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. 
So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. And when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. And he turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. And so he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who was at the Anayim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute has been here. And so he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been there. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own, or we should be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out, and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as she drew back his hand, but as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This ends the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would grant to us understanding and that you would grant to us faith to believe and respond to your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, you get done with those 30 verses and you think, what is going on? Well, you know I like alliteration. I don't feel like I've worked hard enough if I can't alliterate my points. And so here's, here's what we have in this chapter. We have hurt, we have a hoax, and we have healing. And we see that this story is about Judah and his troubles, Tamar and her trap, and God and his triumph. So we've got double alliteration here. So I want to start first by looking at the hurt and see that this is a story of Judah's troubles. Last week, we saw Joseph involuntarily going down to Egypt. And now Judah voluntarily goes down from his brothers. And this is more than a geographical descent. This is moral. Judah leaves and departs from the covenant family. And departing from that family, he departs from the covenant blessings of land and offspring. And he embraces Canaanite life and culture. 
He becomes the BFF with this Hira, the Adulamite. And then to make it even more explicit of his embracing of this culture, he marries a Canaanite woman, an unnamed daughter of Shua in verse 2. But what we're not told is why Judah departs, why there's this descent into Canaanite lifestyle. We're not told explicitly. Maybe, we are speculating here, but maybe it was to get away from his troubles. Lots of people are looking for a fresh start when they move away, just to get away, new start. And why would Judah want a fresh start? Well, remember that Judah was the fourth son of Leah. Leah was the wife of his father Jacob, who Jacob was tricked into marrying by his uncle Laban, that he never really loved like he loved Rachel, the father of Joseph and Benjamin. And Jacob's favoritism of Rachel and her children was made cruelly obvious on one occasion before Jacob encountered his brother Esau. And fearing the hostility of Esau because Jacob stole his birthright and his blessing, in order to protect Rachel and her children before this encounter should violence erupt, he places Leah and her children at the front of the line before this encounter. And as one commentator insightfully notes, imagine the questions coming from the back of Leah's camel. Mom, why are they so far behind us? Why isn't dad protecting us like he protects them? So imagine what that would do as you're growing up. And now we see Jacob as his dad refusing to be consoled by any of his other children when he thinks his favorite son Joseph is dead, which we saw at the end of Genesis chapter 37. And maybe Judah in his hurt is tired of feeling like a second-class son, and he bolts. He leaves to get away from his pain and his hurt. But we don't know that for sure. We're not told explicitly why Judah leaves. But we do know that getting rid of your troubles is often more complex than simply changing location. And in any event, Judah's life will still reflect the dysfunction of the family he leaves. His life is still going to reflect the dysfunction of the family he leaves. For example... Having a dad who had four wives didn't seem to model sexual restraint for Judah very well. Because what we read here is that Judah saw this Canaanite woman and he took her. Saw and took, which is language used elsewhere in Genesis to denote transgression. Eve saw and took the forbidden fruit. The sons of God saw and took the daughters of men in a wicked way that precipitated the flood. And that's what we see Judah doing here, modeling a lack of sexual restraint, which he would have observed in his own home. And he also doesn't seem to be the most engaged father. Unlike Abraham and Isaac, who were both involved in the naming of their children, Jacob didn't name very many of his children, including not naming Judah. And Judah mimics this as well. His wife names their last two children, explicitly tells us she named them. And it doesn't even seem like Judah is around when his last son is born. He's not even in town. And so he mimics these kinds of things that he sees in the dysfunction of his own family. And it's with the birth of his children that Judah's troubles and the hurt begin to multiply now. Because we read that his firstborn son, Ur, is put to death by the Lord. He was wicked in some way. That's all we're told. The only thing we know is that he was wicked. He erred, er erred in some way and is put to death by the Lord. And then his second son, Onan, is also struck dead by the Lord. So clearly, Judah's new life is not going 
as planned. He's had to dig two graves for his children, and the perpetuation of his family line is in trouble because he only has one son remaining, Shelah, and he's next in line to father children, father offspring through Tamar. And everybody who ends up with Tamar is dead. And so he's not about to let his only remaining son go be with Tamar. And so Judah begins to treat Tamar like she's poison, like she's a jinx, like she's bad luck. And so he kicks her out of his own house and sends her back to her own father, blatantly neglecting his obligation to care for someone who is now a member of his own household, as if everything she touches is cursed. And so as we look at this story, what seems to be going on here is that Judah is inclined to blame everybody else for his troubles. Even though he has sold his own brother as a slave down to Egypt, he's left the family, he's married a Canaanite woman, all of his problems and all of his troubles are Tamar's fault. This is Tamar's problem. This is about my dad. This is about my family. So it seems like he, he believes everything is everybody else's fault. And we, like Judah, can become experts at blaming all of our troubles and the disarray and the mess that we find in our lives on other people. Isn't one of our favorite disclaimers? It's not my fault. This is not my fault. This mess is not my fault. Now that's not to deny that all of us have been wounded and hurt and broken by the sins that others have committed against us and by the dysfunction in our own family before we even get into kindergarten. Those things are true. But we have trouble admitting, and really we, we often even have trouble seeing in our hurt and in our brokenness, that although we've been sinned against, we often sin in our response to that. When we're wronged, we tend to wrong in response. And in our reaction, we contribute to the mess and the brokenness. You know, it's true, the saying, hurt people hurt people. That's very true. And about ourselves, we're very willing to admit the first half of that. That we're hurt people who have been wronged by others. We're much slower to admit the second part of that. That in our hurt, we perpetuate that by hurting other people. And the one that seems to be getting the hurt, hurt the most now is Tamar. And so that leads to a hoax. So we see that this is also a story of Tamar's trap. So let's look at that second. Tamar has to bury one husband in grief. Okay, that's what her life has held for up to this point. And according to custom... It fell to Ur's brother, Onan, Tamar's brother-in-law, to fulfill the obligation of producing offspring for Ur. And Judah's aware of this custom. He mentions it in verse 8. Now, ordinarily, a man was not to sleep with his brother's wife unless that brother died without producing offspring. If the brother died young and didn't have any children, it went to the brother to provide offspring. Now, this was in place to protect the inheritance of children. Particularly in Israel, this would have been important with land inheritance. And it would have been important in a lot of cultures in this case because of the significance and importance that a firstborn would have in perpetuating the family line. And Ur is the firstborn. And so this practice called leveret marriage, for the Latin term brother-in-law, is later mandated in Israel's law in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 and 6. 
And it says this, If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. If you're familiar with the story of Ruth, this is, this is kind of what the background is to that story. But Onan, Ur's brother, realizing that this child is not going to be recognized as his and will actually diminish the inheritance that his own children will receive, refuses to carry on his brother's name, which might be another sign or a signal of sibling dysfunction in the book of Genesis. He just refuses to do it, but rather than outright refusing, which actually the later law in Deuteronomy permits. In fact, that's what happens in the book of Ruth. The obligation is declined, so it's declinable, but Onan doesn't do that. He doesn't just decline. He opts to use Tamar for his own sexual satisfaction. His conduct shows that he has absolutely no intention of fathering a child for his brother with Tamar. And yet he's content and happy to exploit her sexually. The whenever in verse 9 shows that Onan's behavior is repeated and regular. He simply uses Tamar. And like Tamar, I know that there are women in this room this morning who have been used and exploited in this way by men who were supposed to act as loving protectors and providers, whether those are fathers or brothers or men in the church, you've been violated and broken in this way. And what you need to see in the text is that God isn't blind to this. He's not blind. Other people might be blind to what's happening, but God is not blind. He puts Onan to death. And it's not just for his failure to provide offspring. Because remember, according to later law, that's permissible for him to decline the obligation. But Onan exploits and uses Tamar, and God cares deeply about justice, and he cares deeply about those who have been exploited and used in this way, as the rest of the story is going to make clear. So here's Tamar's situation. She's been privately exploited by Onan, and she is now shackled with the public shame of being twice widowed and still childless. And to add insult to injury, literally to add insult to injury, her father-in-law Judah has consigned her to kind of this no man's land where he sends her back to her father's house as a widow to wait for Shelah, who he has no intentions of ever giving her. Again, practicing the family trait of deception and risking his family line at Tamar's expense. Tamar's experience in being part of the covenant family has been anything but a blessing. Tamar at this point is trapped in shame and in sin and faces a helpless and hopeless future without a husband and without children. That's where Tamar finds herself. But she is unwilling to stay trapped. She waits a while because Shayla has grown up as the story moves on, but she realizes that Judah still isn't going to allow her to marry him in verse 14. And so she hatches this hoax. She devises her own trap to get out of her trap. More deception in the story of Joseph and his brothers. We have more deception here. Tamar's dressing like a widow still, probably frustrating Judah. He's probably thinking, 
why can't she just marry into someone else's family already so our family can be rid of her? But she's still wearing widow clothes. But when she learns of Judah's travel plans, she takes off her widow's garments and apparently dresses somewhat like a prostitute. Because that's what Judah thinks she is when he sees her. So she takes the widow's clothes off, dresses differently, heads to town, and apparently Judah's lack of sexual restraint is still operative here and is no secret. Because she has an idea that this is, this is all it's going to take to work. So she shows up in town, Judah's passing by, he sees her, and he propositions her. Propositions her having no idea her actual identity as his daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law Tamar. And he promises a goat in exchange for sex. Yet another deception, interestingly enough, involving clothes and a goat in the book of Genesis. It's another one. Clothes and goat leading to deception. But Tamar wisely asks for a pledge until he can make payment. So he says, well, what kind of pledge do you want? And so she secures his signet, his cord, and his staff. Now, I know in our culture, we don't really have much to base what that means. But most commentators would say this would, be, this would have been the equivalent of securing his wallet, his credit card, and his social security number. And she's not going to wait around for the goat. She has what she wants. In fact, we could say in the, in the end, both get what they want. Judah, who's coming out of mourning for the death of his own wife, has a good time with who he believes is a prostitute. And Tamar gets pregnant. She conceives. And so this hoax is successful. But don't we feel a little bit uncomfortable describing it that way? Her hoax is successful because the deceptive and incestuous nature of what we're reading about here is very unsettling, to say the least. So we have to wonder, well, what exactly is going on here? Well, even though we would say that Tamar's trap is not about sex, her trap is about righting a wrong. What was true of Judah is also true of Tamar. When we've been wronged, we tend to respond wrongly. Now that is not to equate sinfully victimizing and using another and responding or reacting to that victimization in a sinful way. That's not to equate those things. Those things are not identical sins. They're not. But they are both real sins and they both perpetuate our experience of brokenness and our need for healing. So we're left wondering, can anything break through this cycle of being sinned against and sinning in response? Being sinned against and sinning in response. If hurt people hurt people who hurt people who hurt hurt people and broken people break people, is there any way out of that? Are we ever going to experience anything else in life since that's all of us? Hurt, broken people. Well, there is something that can break through. And so we need to look finally at the healing and see that this is also a story of God's triumph. This healing starts for Judah with a rumor. Tamar has been immoral. And there's proof. She's pregnant. And so Judah's immediate reaction is harsh. Bring her out and burn her. Of course, Judah can't wait to be rid of Tamar. Because with her out of the picture, he can finally marry off his son Shelah and perpetuate the family line without feeling that Shelah is going to die if he ends up with Tamar. But notice 
the reaction is not only harsh, it's very hypocritical. Because Judah had no problems at all with his own sexual promiscuity with a prostitute three months earlier. Which, again, according to later Deuteronomic law, required the putting to death of not only the prostitute, but the one who was with the prostitute. But when Tamar is escorted out to be executed, she's got her trump card, right? The signet, the cord, and the staff. And she declares, I'm pregnant by the one to whom these things belong. Specifically, she says, please identify. The language that's used by Joseph's brothers, including Judah, when they present Joseph's coat to their father, Jacob. Please identify. And whether it's these words or whether it's these items, Judah's eyes are opened now to his own sin, his own guilt, his own brokenness, and his own need for healing. He confesses. She's more righteous than I am. He gets it. It's not everybody else's fault. He can't just keep blaming his family, his father, Tamar. It's not going to work anymore. Judah has to own his own sin, his own guilt, his own brokenness. Because he's wrong. Tamar was right to take this matter of producing offspring so seriously. It's part of covenant blessing. Seed and land, offspring. She is right to take this matter seriously, and Judah is sinfully wrong. And he's also wrong about Tamar. Her child is living proof. In fact, Judah himself is living proof that she's not cursed. Everything she touches dies and withers. He's wrong about that. And you know, the truth is, we're all broken, and we're all in need of healing. We've all contributed to the mess, not in the same way. This is not to equate anything. But we've all contributed to the mess when we're sinned against in sinning in our response. And this isn't to minimize the wrong that's been done to you. It's that we have to start with the trouble that's flowing from our own heart. That's where we have to start, not denying the other things. And Judah seems to get to that point where he admits this and he confesses it. And we need to admit it and we need to confess it because it's when confession happens that God's healing mercy begins. With confession. Got to get to this point. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. Learn this lesson. Not to come to Jesus because you are fit to come, but to come to him because you are unfit to come. Your fitness is your unfitness. Your qualification is your lack of qualification. And listen, there's not going to be any healing until you admit that you're sick. Not that the people around you are sick. As true as that is, there's not going to be any healing until you admit your own sickness, your own problem with sin, and the healing that you need for your own brokenness. Judah does that. No more excuses. And the change in Judah from this point forward in the Joseph story is quite pronounced. He is softer. He's more compassionate. He's more gracious. He's more affectionate toward his family. He's more caring and understanding toward his father, Jacob. But no wonder, because now he understands what it is to lose sons. Now he knows what it's like to try to protect his youngest son, even if that means hurting other people in the process. 
Now he understands what it's like to be tricked by a veiled woman like his father was when he was tricked into marrying his mother Leah when he didn't want to. See, that's what happens. You become more compassionate and more gracious and more caring and more understanding when you become more aware of the flaws and sins in your own heart and yet have received mercy from God. You might be wondering, what mercy does Judah receive here? Life. Not just the sparing of his own life as an adulterer and sleeping with a prostitute earlier, but the life that's given to Tamar, the perpetuation of his own line. That's the mercy that Judah receives. And if we could say that hurt people hurt people and broken people break people, we could also say this. People who know God's mercy show God's mercy. Is that true of you? Have you confessed your brokenness? Or are you still prone to blaming all of your troubles and all the hardship in your life and relationships on other people? Denying the part that you've played in any of the mess or brokenness. Were you at that point where you can confess your own contribution to the brokenness within you and around you? And are you a person who knows God's mercy and can show that mercy? You could say it this way too. Those who know God's grace and have received that freely are those most inclined to extend that grace to others. But it's not just Judah who receives God's healing mercy. It's also Tamar. She is not only rescued from the flames of condemnation, but her highly questionable and unusual actions result in twins born in Judah's line that will have great significance for the kingdom of God. One of these twins is named Zerah, and the other's name is Perez. The name Perez means breach or breakthrough in Hebrew, and this is fitting because it's through this birth that we see God's triumph in breaking through the sin and the brokenness and the hurt, breaking through to produce healing. And this is because Perez is an ancestor of David. And as an ancestor of David, he's also an ancestor of the son of David, Jesus, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus is born from this messy line, this confused, broken line. And isn't that where we ultimately see God's triumph in breaking through? We see it clearly with the birth of Jesus stepping into our messy, broken world of sin and shame and taking the blame that actually did belong on us upon himself. He didn't come and blame us. He took that blame upon himself. And he bore the curse that really did rest upon us as a sinful people by dying on a cross so that he could declare us righteous and so that he could welcome us into his family forever. You see, Jesus is God's gift of healing for the broken because it's through Jesus that we can be honest that we're a hurt people but we don't have to be a hurt people who hurt people. Through Jesus and the gospel, we can become a forgiven people who forgive people. And that can characterize us more than our hurt. The grace of Christ can characterize us more than our hurt. Jesus is God's gift of broken, 
are God's gift of healing for the broken. Broken people like you, broken people like me, broken people like Judah, broken people like Tamar who faced a hopeless future as a discarded widow, abused, rejected, childless, who now becomes an ancestor, a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus the Messiah, mentioned right there in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy. And isn't it true that God's great triumph is not so much in preventing our brokenness, but in displaying his power to heal it. Not so much in stopping our messes, but in redeeming them. You ever heard of garbage art? Art that's made by artists who are dealing with trash, garbage, discarded items. You wouldn't know it to look at this, but this is all made out of trash. If you look really closely, you just see these recyclable items and things that people threw away, and artists will make these portraits like this. And you know, that's what God does. Not that we're trash, but he takes the trash and the junk and the garbage in our lives, the things that have been done to us and the things that we've done to others, and he brings healing, and he makes something beautiful out of it in his healing mercy. That's what he does. Do you believe that he can do that in the midst of your mess and your brokenness that you're, that you're feeling right now? Do you believe that he can do that? Well, be encouraged that he does it here in Genesis chapter 38, but even more than that, he demonstrates that he does it by taking a cross, a symbol of shame and death, and transforms it into a symbol of life and hope and forgiveness and grace and healing. And he takes a tomb and transforms it into a door of hope. Believe that God can do that. Confess the brokenness that's in you and your own need for healing and look to the cross and find mercy. Look to the cross and find Jesus, God's gift of healing for the broken. Let's pray. Father, it's difficult for us to admit when we're hurt and when we're wounded and when we're wronged that in our reactions, we often contribute to the mess. So Lord, we look to you as the only one who can heal our brokenness and the brokenness around us. We thank you that you've sent Jesus into the world, born into this world to deal with our sin, to be broken for us so that we might know forgiveness and healing. May that be true of us in Jesus' name.